Maui Mayor uh, Mike Victorino is expected to survey the extent of the flooding in East Maui again today. By some estimates, half of what the island sees in monthly rainfall totals fell yesterday, overwhelming the Kaupakalua Reservoir. That forced the evacuation of residents. Emergency crews are working to clear roadways that were impassable after 14 inches of rain fell and spilled over the dam. The mayor is waiting on his request for the state to declare uh, the area a disaster zone due to the damage and ongoing threat. Here's Mayor Victorino. The Civil Air Patrol will be launching their plane to help us with assessment from the air. And we're hoping that we'll get a couple of our drones from the county police department and have them up and checking uh, more extensively the upstream damage that has maybe occurred where we had no accessibility to. What did you see when you went up yesterday afternoon? What basically I saw was uh, a lot of runoff, two bridges, one totally wiped out, disappeared, gone, no bridge. That's the Ahi Road Bridge, it was gone. And heavily damaged Kapakalua Bridge, which uh, on the Eastern had been eroded and most of the asphalt had been lifted. And so it's impassable at this time. So also we saw an area where a few homes had been devastated, swept off their foundation, and a couple of them had been destroyed. They weren't even there anymore. And so a lot of this has happened upstream of the dam and and upstream of what was going on as far as the dam situation was concerned. This morning I have been reported that the damage has gone just about where the spillways are and just falling below that at this time. But we're concerned that there are more heavy rains that will be occurring later today and then not only the dam but other facilities and tertiary areas above and below the dam have been inundated and we're scared that maybe more things will occur so we're asking everyone to be vigilant and stay tuned to emergency broadcasting. Do you have an update on uh, who might have sought shelter because of the evacuation? Last night I was reported that uh, five people in Hana had gone to the Hana High School and Hana Elementary High School. We had uh, about four people go to Paia Community Center last night. But you know the one thing I'll say, Catherine, you know, we're so fortunate here. When disasters like that happen within our residential communities, our families and friends open up their homes. So many of the, those people that may have had problems or weren't able to get back to their home last night were taken care of by family and friends. I want to say mahalo to everybody. And, you know, they did a great job again. And, and it just shows when the need is there, Maui opens up their hearts, their homes, and their hands to help everyone. You know, I think everybody just needs to be aware of the dangers of uh, flash flooding. We had the two visitors, right? A tragic loss, yes. Yes. Absolutely. And water rises very quickly. I had, when I was traversing the area, met with some residents, and many of them said, Mayor, we haven't seen water like this ever or, you know, 25 to 50 years, you know, they've lived in the area. And this was just an immense amount of rain coming down in an intense moment in a short period of time, and wow, it just created havoc out there. And we've seen this in Kauai. We've seen this all over the state. I tell people this, climate change is upon us and we've got to be more vigilant these days and be more proactive as far as trying to prevent property loss and, you know, loss of life. You know, I recall covering the Coloco Dam breach and out of that that tragedy and the, the loss of life there, the state did conduct a state dam inspection and that one particular dam there on Maui, you know, was on the list. We have reached out to Mahipono, DLNR. What can you share with us at this point? At this time, in the plans that I've been looking at and some of the communication I've had, it shows that in October of last year, the dam, Mahipono, and uh, 
requested that the dam be decommissioned because of this inadequacy, the lack of need. You know, we didn't need the dams anymore. But it's still somewhere in the state system at DLNR. I think it's on their, somebody's desk or somewhere in, in, in the process of being decommissioned. But I don't know enough information. You know, I'm not in the blame game. Right now, we're in the, in the mode of assessment, cleanup, and, and trying to do what we can to mitigate any more effects uh, that may come with more rains on the horizon at this time. Okay, well, we will, I'm sure, be getting a report, you know, on the records, what the latest status is. But obviously the concern is for loss of life and loss of property as we're in this active mode of flooding. Right, absolutely. And right now, I'm so happy to say, to my knowledge at this point in time, no injuries or no loss of life. So I'm very thankful to the good Lord for that. As far as property damage, uh, I would say about a half a dozen homes that reported or were either damaged or destroyed from the flooding that occurred. And more assessments are being done as we speak at this moment. And so hopefully we'll get a more accurate report by noon or one o'clock this afternoon. We'll share it with everyone, media, including yourself. And I just ask everyone at this time to please stay out of the area so our assessment crews and our cleanup crews have the time both state and county, um, time to clean up and make things a little more safe for everyone if returning is available. We'll see how the weather turns this afternoon or later today. We will be monitoring that very closely. The weather service has been very accommodating and giving us updates. So for right now, Catherine, all I ask everyone is to be vigilant, stay out of the area for at this moment in time, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to open up and let people back in and I pray that the damage is, is what I've reported, and there's no more major damage out there. But we'll wait and see before I comment anymore. As far as the bridge that is out, what about access for that community there? What it is is the communities are not cut off, but it's kind of right where in the middle of these roadways where, you know, either you're on one side or the other, you're going to have to traverse up or down and catch on highway and get back to wherever you need to go. And we've been in, in contact with the Haima and others to uh, ask the governor for a declaration of a disaster for Maui County, especially the East Maui area, especially the East Maui. But again, it's pretty early because if we have more rains, we could have more damage. So again, let's pray for little rain or no rain if that's possible. And more importantly, again, you know, you're going in these areas, there may be power lines that are down, there's roadways, landslides. There's a lot of reasons why I'd like the public not to go into this area for right now until we have time to make a total assessment and to, you know, if anything else, to sound the all clear or to see what kind of inclement weather is coming in and maybe affecting the area. So okay. I ask everybody to be patient at this time. That was Maui Mayor Mike Victorino, who we talked to earlier this morning about the ongoing flooded conditions there on the Valley Isle.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from McDonald Rudy, a Honolulu law firm serving the community for nearly 30 years, offering a range of trusts and estates litigation services, including wills, trusts, and probate. Learn more at mcdonaldrudy.com. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check looks at why the feds are taking a second look at what the Honolulu Police Department spent its CARES money on. Reporter Christina Gendra joins us this morning. Hi, Christina. Hi, Catherine. So share with our listeners, what federal agency is this? So this is the U.S. Treasury that is auditing the city and is asking some questions about HPD's spending of the federal CARES dollars that were supposed to um, help the city address the pandemic, both you know, through a public health lens and an economic lens as well. Um, HPD spent millions of these CARES dollars on equipment, um, a lot of trucks, actually over $3 million worth of vehicles, including um, the ATVs, I think a lot of people have noticed, um, a training simulator that cost $118,000, a robot dog that cost $150,000, um, over $700,000 of thermal imaging equipment. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that uh, the Treasury wants to see some documentation to, to justify it. And I know the robotic dog was kind of a head-scratcher <laughs> to some people. Yeah, you know, when you think about how the spending has to have some connection to COVID, that one may be kind of a stretch. Um, the, the department said that it could be used as like a thermal imaging camera at the city-run um, homeless encampment at Kahei Lagoon. Um, but to my knowledge, they didn't use it at all last year there. I don't know if they're using it there yet. But, you know, you think thermometers are kind of cheaper, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, $150,000. That's a lot for a dog, a robotic dog. Um, and, you know, if I recall, wasn't, uh, I guess, the guideline that you couldn't use the money if there was, uh, the stuff was already budgeted for? Right. It was a couple rules, and, of course, they're up to interpretation, I guess. But the main things are that the expenditures had to be necessary and incurred during the public health emergency related to covid and um, they couldn't have already been in the budget. So it couldn't be something that you already had on your wish list and you just want to bill it to CARES. So um, that'll be something the Treasury is looking at as well is if you know it, the, these expenditures really met the requirements. And there was the overtime scandal. And I know Mayor uh, right. Kirk Caldwell had said that uh, he wasn't going to have federal money you know, go toward that overtime. Uh, so I don't know. Where are we at with that? That's kind of a question mark. Um, yeah, Caldwell had said that any of the, the money that was initially going to be built to CARES that was improperly used, meaning officers were kind of abusing their overtime, that that would be supplanted with city funds. Now, I asked new Mayor Blangiardi about that last week, and he said no city funds will be used for that. Um, and he didn't offer an explanation, and his office has not responded to follow-up questions about that, so I don't know how much money, um, you know, was abused and, you know, who exactly will be paying for it and why, it's, it's a big question mark. Um, but the, the Treasury will also be looking at that overtime spending, which by my count exceeds $18 million, um, between last March and this January. And were you able to get any more info from HPD at all? I really didn't have much luck with them. Um, they declined to be interviewed. Um, you know, a spokeswoman just acknowledged that the, the police department's sharing um, spending information with the Department of Budget and Fiscal Services. 
and uh, she didn't provide any further information. I also asked for an interview with Mayor Blanchardi's administration, um, and they did not respond, which is um, happening a lot lately. So it'll be interesting to see then if we have to return any of this stuff or pay the money back. Right. That would be among my <laughs> questions. I'd like to ask them um, if they would get back to me. I mean, hopefully that's not the case. The city's already in a tough financial situation. Um, we're starting budget hearings this week, so we're probably going to hear more about that. Um, but that would be not so good if we had to return money. I mean, the bottom line is this, the CARES dollars were supposed to help us bounce back from the tough public health and economic hit that we took. And um, there's still so many people in need. So there's a lot of folks that, that weren't so happy with the amount of money that went to the police department. All right. Well, thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Read her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the exhibition Kamram Samimi in Stillness, with works exploring ideas of space, time, and impermanence. Honolulumuseum.org. Shalanda Baker is a fresh face in Washington, D.C. President Joe Biden named her as deputy director of the Office of Energy Justice. It's a new position for the law professor who previously was on the faculty at the University of Hawaii Law School. Uh, Her new book, Revolutionary Power, an Activist Guide to the Energy Transition, was just recently released. So I didn't set out directly to write the book. I mean, my work as a scholar, really up until I moved to Hawaii, had focused on large-scale renewable energy projects. I was interested in indigenous rights, and I had been studying the impact of large-scale renewable energy projects in Mexico. And so when I got to Hawaii, you know, a lot of my work around renewables and indigenous rights were right in front of me. But I got really interested in sort of the domestic energy policy issues, and Hawaii really foreshadowed, as you know, a lot of the issues that started to unfold around the country. And so the Hawaii story and all of the little things that I encountered during my time there really stuck with me. And as I sat down to write a book, that was the story that wanted to be told. It wasn't about, you know, the Mexico work that I had done, which actually had formed quite a large part of my academic career. It was all of the, the stories about Hawaii that really wanted to be told. And so that's that's what I did. You did mention the fact that our Hawaiian king had mm. electricity at Iolani Palace, you know, before the White House, which everybody here knows. <laughs> but I think <laughs> it, it was just nice to put that in perspective. I think there's a line in that chapter that starts um, before the unlawful takeover, Hawaii had power. And in the book, I'm really kind of playing with power and the way it's, it's used in so many different ways. Obviously, it's um, electricity, but it's also about people power and, you know, the, the political power that, that folks have. And so for me, the fact that Hawaii was first in sort of accessing electricity and now the state has the highest electricity cost in the, in the country and some of the most energy burdened people in the country I just felt like, you know, this is a way to frame this idea that power is available to folks in Hawaii, um, both in terms of the electricity, but also in terms of how they can garner control over the entire energy system in the state. Well, we are watching various segments of our community work toward the goals, you know, our green goals, 
which are lofty mm-hmm. goals, but there is also a little bit of a disconnect and people need time to process, you know, when you all of a sudden see a large scale solar farm come up in your neighborhood or when you see the giant wind turbines up on the North Shore. Right. The North Shore story was really the entry point to my energy justice work in the state. So I got to Hawaii in 2014, right as the state was about to embark on this 100% renewable portfolio standard, which was signed into law the summer of 2015. The state was grappling with rooftop solar and As you know, the utility was sort of saying, whoa, 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 there's too much rooftop solar. We can't do it. It's going to blow up the grid. We need to put an end to this. And there was also this um, beginning of a discussion around community solar and what that would look like as an alternative to the rooftop solar that homeowners could get. What would be the, the entry point to solar for renters and condo dwellers? And so all of this was on the table. And a community in in the North Shore that had really seen these wind turbines go up reached out to me. And at that point, I had five students who were just sort of thinking about Hawaii's energy landscape and trying to think about the justice dimensions of the energy transition in the state. And so they asked us to come and provide listening sessions in that community. And what we did was, you know, listen closely to the hopes and dreams of folks all along the North Shore. And I believe we were... We went to three separate communities because, as you know, the North Shore is not a monolith and it's diverse in and of itself. And we did those listening tours in the context of the Next Era merger, where, you know, the Florida-based utility company was coming to what we thought experiment um, in Hawaii to sort of try out a vision of uh, a clean energy future. And we were educating folks on the North Shore about the energy system, but also listening closely to them about what they saw as a just energy future in the state. And from that process, I really learned about energy justice, both in terms of procedural justice, but also in terms of what might be possible for a place like Hawaii, where there's so many resources for clean energy, but the people are still paying so much for electricity. And I recall the line in there, I think, when when you were making reference to Hawaiian Electric and NextEra, and you know, Hawaiian Electric was the devil we knew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it was so fascinating to to be, you know, on the ground during that time when people really lined up behind Hawaiian Electric and said, whoa, you know, we're, we know this, we know this situation. We know how to deal with Hawaiian Electric. We're willing to sort of keep playing with them. And you may also recall that um, the Hawaii Public Utilities Commission had just publicly admonished the utility for essentially slow walking the the state's energy transition and said, look, you've got to shape up. You've got to find ways to get more uh, solar on the grid and find ways for customers to participate in this transition, or we will force you to do that through regulation. And so there was a lot of excitement around how the regulators were beginning to treat the utility. And we, I think stakeholders in the energy field were sort of thinking that there was a beginning of a transformation happening. And so we had this interloper from Florida come to the state. And by the way, NextEra was the parent company for Florida Power and Light. And Florida Power and Light had really scaled back on access to rooftop solar in that state. And so people were really worried that they would take the same approach in Hawaii and very much go for large utility-scale solar farms and utility-scale wind projects, which really were sort of counter to a lot of the values of people in Hawaii. 
And yet now we have a big push by Hawaiian Electric to get a lot of rooftop solar on residential homes. So, you know, the utility kind of scored a pretty big win, I think, in the fall of 2015, where the Public Utilities Commission said, you know, the, the standard net energy metering process that we had allowed um, is, is going to be modified and essentially homeowners who want to put rooftop solar on their homes will not get as much back for generating that electricity. And so um, the incentive structure for net energy metering really matters uh, to utilities and utilities all over the country are really fighting to reduce the amount that they pay to homeowners for those homeowners generating electricity on their rooftops. And so that might be a part of this story. You know, I think Hawaii is interesting because you don't have infinite space, you know, to put these sort of mega projects in place, unlike other places in the country where there are broad swaths of land. And so that could also be a part of the utilities calculus. I'd be interested to sort of run the numbers on that as well and really understand what the economic benefits are to the utility for promoting more rooftop solar at this stage. You know, investor-owned utilities do nothing unless unless those choices benefit their shareholders. I mean, that's ultimately the, the structure and design of, of the investor-owned utility. And the PUC did really force Hawaiian Electric to change its model, saying you can't right. be doing business as usual. Right. You know, again, I cut my teeth on domestic energy policy in Hawaii, and it was such a fascinating place to learn about energy policy because we have people on the street who know what the Public Utilities Commission is. Right? We we had people who sort of are able to talk about energy policy in, in a more sophisticated way than other people around the country because electricity and the energy system has such an intimate connection to the daily lives of people who live in Hawaii. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that 2014 order where the PUC said, look, you've got to change, really was sort of a bombshell in the broader energy policy landscape around the country. And I don't think I can overstate just how significant that order was and how other regulators around the country were sort of looking to Hawaii and saying, oh, if Hawaii can get it right, then we might have a chance. And there was a lot of sort of hope around Hawaii's energy transition at that time. So what do you hope to bring to your new job as the deputy director there, given your experiences here in Hawaii, you know, when it comes to power and politics? One thing I really learned from my time in Hawaii was that you have to listen to people and that people have the best ideas about what the energy system should look like in service of their humanity. And so after I, I left Hawaii, I actually came to Boston and started another organization called the Initiative for Energy Justice. And through that work, I also learned about listening to people and translating visions of communities into policy ideas and frameworks. And so as the new deputy director for energy justice, I think listening will be an essential part of, of this role. And I learned that first in Hawaii. All right. Well, we will be watching your progress there in the office from afar. Well, it was such a gift to be able to be in Hawaii during that time. And I learned from so many people, elders, colleagues, stakeholders, advocates, about just what a, a just clean energy future might look like. And so I, I feel very privileged to have spent time there. 
That was Shalonda Baker, a returning guest here on The Conversation. She wrote a new book, which is out now. It's called Revolutionary Power. It provides a perspective on Hoey's transition to green energy and the power behind it. Lawmakers introduced some three dozen bills this session that deal with electric vehicles and green energy. The conversation around EVs comes as several automakers announce plans to expand their offerings and move away from gas-powered vehicles. We talked to Blue Planet Foundation's Melissa Miyashiro and Hawaiian Electric's Aki Marceau, who heads up its Transportation Electrification Division. Here's Aki. There are a couple measures that relate to expanding our public charging infrastructure, Mm -hmm. which we see as something critical as we move to clean transportation, especially as more manufacturers are committing to transition all of their models to electric. So one is just replenishing our successful rebate program for Mm -hmm. EV chargers. So we do, in the state since 2019, have charging rebate program that's administered by Hawaii Energy that prioritizes, makes more affordable installing a charging station in places like multifamily homes and also public locations so that the people who currently don't have access to charging at home or at work can participate in the benefits of electric vehicles. So that funding will actually disappear after this year if it doesn't get additional funding. That's kind of key to getting more people to get out of gas-driven cars and get into an EV. Yeah, that's exactly right, and especially for those that don't live in single-family homes. And we know so many residents in Hawaii are renters or live in apartment buildings, so they currently have a harder time being able to charge at home and really rely on that public charging network to be able to, to charge their vehicle. So we want to give them the confidence that electric vehicles can work for their lifestyle. We've had a number of car companies just announce that they're going to go EV. What was that like when you saw those announcements this week? I can chime in on that. So we're we're really excited and seeing the trends in the industry. We've been following them for quite some time, but it's nice to see kind of formal announcements by the auto industry because what that really does is that positions the United States at large. You know, these are American car companies like GM and Tesla's been a leader in the space as well, but it positions us as global leaders now in geographically you see China and Europe also leading the charge in terms of electrification. And what that also means is that we can really focus our efforts to building out the infrastructure needed to support that transition to really decarbonize this transportation space. So even in Hawaii, you'll find that petroleum use in transportation far surpasses what you see in, say, the electric grid because we have been cleaning up our electric grid more and more. And so that's our biggest opportunity. And to see, you know, the auto giants really kind of stepping in and taking a leadership role has been very, very exciting for us. And we're preparing and we're continuing to work on initiatives that help prep the state to allow us to really welcome that transition with open arms. Yeah, I think Volvo was the latest automaker and 
Aki, you know, I, I think recently Hawaiian Electric uh, had a number of EV chargers, I think, right, that they were uh, offering. I don't know how that went. So I think what you're referring to, well, there's a few different programs, but one is our public charging program. And so we have 29 public DC fast chargers. So these are kind of like superchargers that we offer throughout our service territory. So that's Oahu, Maui, Big Island, Molokai. And we've installed uh, 25 of those. Just this last year, we installed seven chargers. And what that really does is it allows a very easy way for folks who own electric vehicles or who ride in electric vehicles to charge their cars. And as Melissa mentioned, you know, a lot of folks live in multi-unit dwellings, condos, apartment buildings, and so this is a really easy way to support them. But also, as we kind of kick into Hawaii 2.0 and reinvigorate our tourism industry, and we see uh, the rental industry starting to transition their cars and folks driving, riding in Ubers and Lyfts and that type of thing, it'll really support that sector of the economy as well. Um, so folks that might not be able to charge at home all the time or they might be driving long distances throughout the day. Uh, so we're really, really excited about that and we're hoping to expand that program later this year with a submission to the Public Utilities Commission. And then, and then another program that we offered, uh, I believe it was last year, was a partnership with NLX and Elemental Accelerator, and we were giving away um, subsidized level two charging chargers for residential and, and commercial entities. And, and that also went quite well. And, you know, hopefully that's a program that in the future we can expand as well. Yeah, because chargers are key. I mean, otherwise you've got people with a lot of range anxiety. Exactly. So we want to make sure that Folks don't, don't have that range anxiety. For those who don't know, range anxiety is that feeling like you're going to run out of charge <laughs> while you're driving. And while the uh, battery capacity of, of vehicles has increased over the years, you know, if, similar to if you're driving in a gas car, if you, if you know you're going to run out of gas, you want to make sure that there's a reliable and accessible gas station nearby. Similarly, we would want to make sure that there's a reliable and accessible a fast charger nearby for you to, um, you know, continue on your day and do what you need to do to, to live your life. Yes, because if you want to go to the North Shore and you're nervous that you may get there and the charger that you were banking on is either all full or is broken, uh, well, what do you do next? Exactly. So that's why, you know, I think Hawaiian Electric, we're, we're known for reliability. And as we deepen our efforts in this space, we hope that our fast chargers, you know, also maintain that level of reliability that I think people are familiar with when they think about Hawaiian Electric. And so, you know, that's definitely our intent is to not only provide conveniently located fast chargers, but also make sure that they're working well and, and accessible and, you know, there's, there's enough so there's not too much of a queue. Um, so while we have started with, with 29 so far, we did do a study last, in, in 2019 that anticipated that we need actually seven times more public fast charging availability in 2030 and in about half that much, you know, three, three and a half times more in 2025. So there's definitely going to be a need, I think, with these recent announcements. We haven't rerun our projections yet, but I think with these recent announcements from the auto industry that that timeline might even be accelerated. So we're, we're looking forward to 
know, really supporting our community in that way. And so what is it that you're going to ask the PUC for? Well, currently we're in, in the discovery phase. It's actually a 25 charger pilot with four additional chargers through a different program. So for all intents and purposes, it's 29 chargers. So we're, we're looking and examining to see how that program is going, what could be improved, how we can make it more efficient, seeing how we can expand that program to make sure that we can deploy more chargers to really support the need that we're anticipating is needed. And Melissa, you know, I've seen lots of stories about how, you know, these EVs are are just going great guns in other countries, right? You're seeing a lot of stuff like in Australia, in China, you know, where they've got the, the pickup trucks, right? Everybody here is waiting for the electric pickup truck because uh, we love pickups here in, uh, in Hawaii. Yes, certainly. The the most popular vehicle in Hawaii for, for many, many years has been the Toyota Tacoma. And we know that many Hawaii residents are, are waiting for an electric version of those trucks. And they are, you know, right around the corner. There's going to be a, a Ford, an F-150, all-electric version that's expected in, in 2022. So the, those are just on the horizon. Um, and we are seeing, you know, a, a similar trend in this move to electric vehicles. EVs are the fastest growing segment of new cars in Hawaii, and that's even during a global pandemic. Last year, EV registrations grew 23.5%, while registrations of gasoline-powered vehicles um, actually dropped 3.2%. So we're seeing this trend, and we want to make sure that we're prepared with charging infrastructure for this influx of zero-emission vehicles that we expect to see in the coming years. And do we have a good handle on the data? Because I remember there was a bit of a hiccup between what was getting registered and what was being sold, I think. Yeah, my understanding is that they've worked out that kink, and we're getting that monthly reporting from the, the state energy office. So we're tracking that closely, and we expect the, the new numbers to come out this week, and we'll see where we're at if that trend is continuing. There is some concern because, you know, there's a thought that you need to have EV drivers pay for upkeep on the road, and if they don't pump gas, <laughs> you know, they're not getting taxed, and so, you know, they were trying to find ways to kind of even the field in that regard. Who wants to take that? I, I think the um, Hawaii Department of Transportation was looking into that, and so my understanding is that they were doing a pilot on the road user charge most recently to see if that might be, there might be alternative ways of funding, you know, operations and maintenance, but, I, you know, they, they're really focusing on that. I, I can't speak with much knowledge as to what the, the progress has been so far with that pilot. Well, I guess I'm just thinking of, you know, incentives or disincentives. One of the things that we're seeing that I'm really excited about is the state and even, you know, recently last year, Hawaiian Electric, we've been making a concerted effort to lead by example. So some of the bills going through the legislature right now are really focused on transitioning the major fleets in our state, which you really see at the state and county levels. And so those bills are really focused on how, how quickly and at what level can we transition our fleet at the state, um, because they do, they do have a lot of cars <laughs> that they're operating. And, you know, there's different numbers and as to what, what the goal is specifically. And, and currently, the State Energy Office and the Department of Transportation are in, in you know, active discussions to really dig into that data to see what's possible. But I, I do feel really optimistic. The HDOT, um, Hawaii Department of Transportation, they've just instituted a very creative procurement mechanism that allows them to both fund and transition the vehicles that they own and, you know, include the charging stations as well. So it's kind of an all-in-one package. 
and you know the different uh, departments can jump in on that procurement methodology. So I think there's a lot of creativity happening, and I think you know really setting that milestones and that goal is going to be really important for us to get where where we need to go. And so I'm I'm really optimistic about some of the bills going through the ledge related to that um, kind of statewide goal setting of fleet transition. And Melissa, anything you want to add? Just thinking about the this conversation around incentives and disincentives. So currently, EVs do pay an extra surcharge when they register, and the idea was that it could then go to to fund, um, you know, some of the, the the road maintenance, recognizing that EVs currently don't pay for that. So, actually, on the books right now, that's the the disincentive. Uh, we don't we no longer have as a state any incentives to encourage people to purchase electric vehicles. So many other states uh, do have a rebate program for the price of the vehicle to make them a a little bit more affordable at the dealership. We don't have anything currently in in place like that. So we do see the need to have some kind of nudge as as we wait for the the market to catch up. Uh, That's why we do want to see the successful charger rebate program uh, continue to be funded because that really is the, the last remaining incentive in some form left in the state. I know many people who were very bummed when the parking perk disappeared, <laughs> the airport parking, the free parking there, and then also, you know, uh, in some uh, uh, parking garages. Right. That's right. Many, many people enjoyed those benefits. And that was something that was put on the the books, you know, several years ago to encourage people to, to go electric. Although we are seeing, you know, increases in EV registrations, there there's still only about 1.3% of all registered vehicles. So we, we do have a long way to go in this transition if, if we want to, to keep pace with this movement at large in other countries and in places like California that are going to be phasing out the sale of new gasoline cars by 2035. That was Juan Electric's Aki Marceau and Blue Planet Foundation's Melissa Miyashiro talking about the landscape for electric vehicles. Just this month, Volvo announced it will switch over to electric vehicles by 2030. That follows uh, GM's plan to eliminate gasoline and diesel cars by 2035. And Volkswagen plans to add 70 electric cars over the next decade. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company with more than 680 employees statewide helping to keep Hawaii on the move. Learn more at parhawaii.com. Ever wonder what it takes to run a radio station in a pandemic? We pull back the curtain in HPR's 2020 annual report. We recap the accomplishments of our local news team and highlight how we've continued to celebrate live music this year, plus some silver linings for good measure. Those on our email list will automatically receive the report. If you're not yet subscribed, just send a note to members at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. 
Hawaiian Telecom has been in the island since the 1800s, one of two telephone companies chartered under the Kingdom of Hawaii. Its ownership has changed hands over the decades. Under Cincinnati Bell, the company elevated Sue Shin as president and general manager of Hawaiian Tel. We get to hear more about her background and the road to the top. I think what it is, is it's the way that I grew up. It's the, the values that, you know, my mom instilled in us. Um, it's around, you know, hard work. It's the value of education. It's the value of curiosity. Really, if I were to have to pinpoint, you know, what kind of got me here, it's really that. Because if you look at my, my resume, right, if you look at it purely academically, it's a head scratcher, right? It's a, my background isn't, it's not intuitive, you know, it's not like people would look at it and go, oh, yeah, yeah, of course makes total sense that she's in this role. And so I really believe it's that. And then candidly, my communications background, right? I mean, we hear it all the time that, you know, it's really important that leaders are good communicators, that they can empathize with their employees, that they can communicate a vision, right? A direction and fire. And so I really think that's where my background, my professional background as a former journalist, of course, Catherine, you know, and then a communicator and then my my work ethic that my mom instilled in us and the value of education and again being curious about about the world about how things work and asking questions and not settling for the first answer you get I, I really think that that probably has more to do with me being in the role today than anything else well take us back to when your family first moved here to Hawaii you know I was really really quite young and so you know I, to be honest, at this point in my life, I wonder if my memories are really my own memories or if it's just from years of hearing stories. But I was five. Um, this was, you know, 1977. And, no, I didn't speak a word of English, nor did my mom or my brother, right? And, uh, you know, you just kind of get plunked into um, a new place. But, you know, I think that actually, as I think about it, you know, I, I definitely had an easier time than, of course, my mom and, and my brother even, because I was at that age where, um, I, I feel like anyway, you know, you're able to adapt so much more quickly, right? The younger you are, right? We watch this in our kids. And so folks have asked me before, they're like, why don't you have an accent when you speak English? And I think it's because of that, right? I moved here when I was five. And so, you know, I went to Ka'iolani Elementary School, right? In Kalihi, it's right across the street from Tomashiro Market. I, I had, I think one of the things that I talk about a lot is, you know, this concept of a village raising a child. And, and I was fortunate that I had fantastic teachers and mentors as I grew up. And, you know, I honestly, I don't have distinct memories of, of the challenges necessarily. I do have distinct memories of my mom being challenged, you know. Um, I have distinct memories of, you know, just things that would come naturally for most families. You get a piece of paper or get sent home from school that's like a field trip form or something like that well that wasn't so simple for my family right I, it, you know and so really at an early age I had to translate and, and explain things to her and and my mom was amazing here she was a single parent raising two kids in a in a completely foreign uh, environment and she decided that she was going to learn English and so she would work at night and then she would go to school during the day while we were in school to learn English. And so those are the types of memories that I have about growing up actually is really 
and, and maybe that those are the memories that really stick with me and maybe stayed with me as, as I got older was just sort of watching her work just so tremendously hard to care for our family and, and really giving us opportunities that she, she never really had. It is kind of that classic American dream story for her, it was. And you used to live at Mayor Wright Housing. You said, yeah, you, your family was on food stamps. You know, all those programs that really help to give people a leg up. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's it's funny, you know, as you hear about ongoing debates around, you know, those types of social programs and then also immigration and things like that. I think it's important to understand maybe and to... For people to be able to relate um, to what that means for, for actual families, right? And I have to say that right between living at Mayor Wright's and, 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 you know, we lived, my mom raised us alone. Um, you know, she didn't remarry until um, I was in college. And so we lived in Mayor Wright's. You know, I went away to college and she was still living in Mayor Wright's and, uh, until she remarried when I went away to school. And so, you know... Truly, those programs were a lifeline for us. You know, we had a place to live. You know, we had food on the table. I even remember they would have these, um, they would give out powdered milk and uh, like chunks of cheese and things like that. And I mean, you know, we're Korean, right? So what do you do with cheese and milk, right? It's not a staple in the Korean diet. But my mom was just so creative and determined she would make like homemade pizza and she would you know use the the cheese for that you know and (laughs) those are the types of memories I have of my childhood they're not you know they're not really of necessarily of struggle or anything like that because I just I it's what it's what we knew you know and and it really was more to me it was really more um one of just kind of you know, you can do anything if you put your mind to it, you know, and that's sort of what my mom instilled in us. It's funny you mentioned powdered milk because I grew up with powdered milk and I love powdered milk. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny, right? It's like Spam, right? People who grew up in Hawaii love Spam and then people on the mainland are like, oh my God. When you think of then how you were able to move through life, you know, you have daughters now uh, that are in college. When you think back about, okay, your daughters are, you know, young women, you know, going out there uh, into the world, making their mark. What do you remember most about, I guess, education growing up? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because education is the reason, you know, that we moved to America. So I don't know that people realize this, but Korea has changed dramatically uh, over the years. People, I think, think of Korea now and they think of K-pop and, and, and sort of, you know, glamorous, you know, uh, K-pop and, I don't know, um, K-dramas and things like that. But at the time, post-war and all of this stuff, it was, maybe it wasn't quite third world, but, I mean, it was a poor, poor country. And so, you know, my mom grew up in an era where it was, you know, this idea of public education, this idea of anybody who wants to be educated can get educated. That's a foreign concept. You know, it costs money. And so um, in these Asian cultures, you they would educate their sons and it, you would start with the oldest son and then you work your way down. And so, you know, she didn't get much of an education growing up. And so for her, it was really around Um, giving us that opportunity to be able to have access to education. And so, you know, I I say this a lot, but I really believe that education is kind of the great equalizer. 
And so in this country, one of the things that I think that, you know, there's lots of debate about the quality of our education and so on and so forth, but there's a lot to talk about there. But I think the fact that we had access to that education, it was tremendous. And so, like I said, I went to Kuyulani and then I went to Kawananakoa and McKinley High School. And then at that point, you know, I was all set to go to UH. Uh, and then I got this e-wave stamp on this, this application from this tiny little school called the University of Laverne. And I thought, eh, you know, on a whim I applied. And I tell you, you know, I got so much financial aid and scholarship money that effectively I got a full ride. And I, you know, and this is another thing that I give my mom so much credit for. I went to her and I said, hey, you know, I did this and, you know, I really want to try to do this. And, you know, we, we didn't have the means. And and she said, well, if it's what you want to do, and right, of course, I had the scholarship money. She said, Let, let's, let's give it a try. Um, and so I was able to go away to school and, of course, knew I wanted to come home. I think kids from Hawaii fall into two, two camps. Either they go away and they're like, oh, my God, I'm never going back to that rock. And others like me that, that you realize that Hawaii is a truly unique and special place. And I knew I wanted to come back and, and uh, raise my family here and, and make a life here, right? So, I mean, I, I don't know if that answers your question entirely, but, but as I think about my girls and, and as women, um, I think, you know, we've made tremendous steps. I think we still have a lot of room for growth in ensuring that, you know, women have, you know, a lot of this conversation around equity and that, you know, we give our girls equal opportunity. And, you know, and, and for me, as I sit here as the president of Hawaiian Telecom, I think some of that has to do with early access to STEM fields for girls. Those are really, really important things for us, to, I think, as a society, make a concerted effort in trying to improve. Yeah. And so I guess as we celebrate Women's History Month, you know, uh, you can pay homage to your mother. Absolutely, absolutely. And I and I say this to people all the time. I mean, I'm not the protagonist in my story. I mean, my mom is the real hero. You know, I was five. I didn't really know any better. And like a lot of kids that age, you know, I probably was focused more on playing and, and figuring out, you know, like who my friends were and all of those types of things. And, you know, boy, I, I think now as a, as a mother myself, I think now about what she went through, and it's it's amazing. It's I I, I, I don't think that I would have been able to do it. So um, what did she say? Honest. What did your mother say when you told her you were getting this job? She must have been so proud. <laughs> yeah, I mean she's she's extremely proud. You know, um, I, I don't know. You know, for those listening out there, you know, I guess part of it is generational too, right? But you know, I was raised in a very by a very pretty stoic Asian, you know, mother. And I, I think, you know, she had to be the mother and the father because she was a single mom. And so, you know, she's extremely proud, of course. But it's not, it, it's not overt. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> I, I think those that, that, that um, I think there are people out there that can relate. But, you know, and, and for me, it's really, candidly, it's been about making her proud, you know, making yeah. that sacrifice worth it. That was Sushin, CEO of Hawaiian Telecom, talking to us about making her mark at the communications company that has been here in the islands for 138 years. And that's it for today. Tomorrow, we check in with a company that was behind the very first drive-through COVID testing here in the islands. 
And you know, it's been a year since the pandemic started, so we're posing a question of the month for March. When was the last time you felt normal before the pandemic? To jumpstart you, uh, our Savannah Harriman Pote shares this memory. I took a flight to visit family in San Diego, and I took a nap fully face down on the airline tray table. That was the last time I wasn't conscientious of the surfaces that I was touching. Oh, well, we can relate to that. Yeah, well, We do want to hear your stories. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Tell us about the last time you remember leaving the house without a mask. Maybe you talked to a stranger on the bus or went dancing. You remember that? You can still uh, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.